are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is MBDA President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry. And since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. When we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. Our focus is on creating activities and programming to enhance your business, adding to your long-term profitability and success. We wish to see the entire bicycle industry continue to thrive and all within to find a genuine work-life balance, lasting friendships, and the comfort of a truly connected industry. Supporting each other, our hopes that the Bicycle Retail Radio podcast allows a spot for connectivity, advancement, and engagement through a sharing of a little bit of each of our authentic self. The NBDA is a nonprofit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you are not already a member, you can learn more and join at nbda.com. Today's guest is Amanda Batty, shop owner of the Bike Co-op in Albuquerque, New Mexico a professional athlete, a bike industry columnist, self-proclaimed troublemaking critic, and simply one badass human. Her raw, honest writing has captivated a following in our industry as her simple, elegant words talk with no bullshit and simply tell things as she sees. She took that same fire and passion and took over the bike co-op ownership last fall. In this conversation, we'll catch up with her about the shop, the continued bike boom, racing, and the current state of the industry. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to offer a sincere note of thanks to association member Bike Flights for their continued support of the MBDA and retailers at large. Bike Flights is a bicycle shipping service and a supplier of bike shipping boxes offering fast delivery, low cost, and excellent service. Since 2009, Bike Flights has been making it easy for individuals, bike shops, events, and cycling industry businesses to ship bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence. A huge fan myself, the company is focused on sustainability. Head over to bikeflights.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, welcome Amanda to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Heather. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I am just jazzed. We were talking off air before we started that you just stepped out of your comfort zone taking over the bike co-op. And I want to get into that. I feel like we should have connected years ago because, I mean, you're racing. There's been trade shows. I mean, day three into 2022, how is it treating you? It's as anything could probably summarize the last two years. I mean, here we go. That's that's pretty much how 2022 has gone so far, including, you know, this. And I think that we definitely should have connected a few years ago or at least prior to this. But you know, that's kind of how life goes. It has a roundabout way of putting us exactly where we need to be. So it is weird like that. Yeah. I'm thinking we have to put a, definitely a meetup on the calendar for biking and, uh, you know, following social media, I feel like I'm connected, even though, you know, we've personally never met. I see you're out there skinning. I'm a huge Alpine skier myself. How's it been? I'm like looking for snow. There's nothing happening here. So I've been skinning three times, four times. It has all happened in the last two weeks because New Mexico has been absolutely dry as a bone. So I love skinning, but oh my God, my legs hurt right now. Like, oh yeah, it's a lot. It's an awesome workout, right? It's like, oh, there's those muscles. (laughs) Yeah. Well, especially as, you know, once you take over a shop, there's not a whole lot of time for hobbies or extracurriculars because it's pretty much 24 seven, especially when it's a small operation. 
and so, yeah, I'm definitely, I would not say that I'm in any sort of athletic shape whatsoever. So it's been very interesting to be out there and realize just how much riding I did not do this fall. That's for sure. Definitely wake up. Your most recent post, I think was a call just to get outside. And I love reading your posts because they're so inspiring. You always drop some really good shit, but I really liked that one. Just get outside, right? It's honestly, it's what keeps me sane. And I think that for a lot of business owners, specifically in the bike industry, we are pouring every part of us, you know, heart, soul, we eat, sleep, drink bikes. Like that is our job is also our passion. And so we end up not going outside. We end up not doing the thing that we love the most. We end up not doing as much as we probably should have, or as much as is healthy for us, especially with all the stress. And so, yeah, it was just kind of like a message to get outside, just go outside and do the thing you love, even if it's for, you know, like five or 10 minutes. And that's actually like the idea that I have for this year is just get outside for even 15 minutes a day because it passes so fast. Life happens so quickly. And a lot of the people that I've spoken with, especially people in the bike industry, have been kind of shocked. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not riding. Like I have not been riding as much since September, you know, since, and it's, yeah, it's one of those things where it just sort of snowballs. And then, you you know, it's been four months and you haven't been on a bike and you're just, you know, mind blown. Yeah. I'm so much better of a person. I'm so much better of like myself when I get outside and do something. And I think that's such a message that everyone listening really should digest just 10 minutes, 15 minutes, like Amanda saying, just make it a priority. I feel like once we do that, once we get out and we take those five or 10 minutes, then we're like, oh, maybe I could steal like five more (laughs) or 10 more. Or an hour or two, because it's, I don't know, just being outside and doing what we love, whether it's skinning or even walking the dog, like that sort of, that has a way of distilling our existence into what's really important. And the stuff that we've convinced ourselves that is important, but isn't actually all that crucial to our survival or happiness or health. And so getting outside just convinced, like is able to sort of center everybody back to where they're supposed to be. And it reminds us of like the fun and the importance. And like, every time I go outside, it makes me a better person rather than like staring at the screen, which I'm pretty sure kills so many brain cells, but it just, it helps me. It helps remind me one, what I'm doing like what kind of my personal mission is, what my professional mission is here, you know, with the shop and as an individual. And it reminds me sort of where I want to be, like where I want to go and the smiles and how this feeling, like when you're out there, you want to share and spread that feeling as much as possible. And I think that, yeah, just get outside. Even, you know, I convinced myself last week, just get on snow. Even if all you do is put your skis on, even if you don't go uphill, put your skins on, put your skis on, just get on the snow. It's okay if it sucks. It's okay if your boots hurt. It's okay if your legs are sore and you forgot how to ski. Just get on the snow and just go from there. Like it doesn't have to be important. It doesn't have to be impressive. It doesn't, yeah. And then sort of after that point, everything tends to work out. Yeah. It's where my brain does the best thinking is when I'm out there, you know, because too often you're just at the computer, like you said, and you're just stuck in what you're doing. You're not allowing yourself time to actually be creative and bring, you know, those thoughts that are circling and put them together into something that can be really impactful and change people's lives. So man, I'm totally with you. Absolutely. I mean, that's why the Outride program exists for kids is to, you know, help neurodivergent kids sort of streamline their thoughts. And because it produces all of these beneficial chemicals in the human brain, whether you're, you know, bike riding or skiing or outside walking the dog, it's still 
there's so many studies that show the direct benefit to brain function and overall well-being. I'm thinking yeah. we could do a whole podcast on this, Amanda. I could talk for hours about it. I could, I mean, yeah, I could talk for hours about it. I wanted to have you on the podcast because, you know, I started looking at the shop. You took part in the Bicycle Retail Excellence Awards this year. And I started looking at your social feeds and what you're doing. And it's really unique. And I truly believe that when you share what you're doing, when retailers listen and look at what other retailers are doing, they could, you know, learn some things. But I think would love to start with just a little bit about you. I did some research on you, went to your website, and I saw that you describe on your website a pattern for your life, such as hurry up, slow down, do it my way, crash hard, start over. Can you dive into that a little bit? So like disclaimer here, I have not updated that site in probably five or six years, maybe. But I mean, the theory still holds true. I'm someone who believes that experience is the best teacher. I mean, I went to business school and there is nothing that I learned that I paid a lot of money to learn that I haven't learned through failure. And I think that too much of the time, especially as humans in like a modern world where we feel like we're constantly being watched, which, you know, if you ask Edward Snowden, we are, but no, it's one of those things where I think that for so many of us, modern humans, we don't want to screw up. We don't want to make mistakes, but my personality and the way that my brain works is I just have this stubbornness where I've always been able to just sort of, you know, focus in on hyper-focus as my therapist calls it. Turns out it's not a personality. It's a whole, you know, neurologically uh, different way of thinking. No, but it's uh, just focus in on kind of what I want and then go for it, sort of hell bent on whatever happens. And I think that it made me a pretty solid downhill racer a semi-dedicated business owner, but it's also been an incredibly effective way to learn all of the things that I don't know if I would have learned otherwise. Just, you know, efficiency. I love, you know, I love looking for the holes, like where are we losing time? Where are we losing, you know, money, energy? What is a waste? What is totally worthless in this context of what we're doing? And then saying, okay, cut that out. What do we have left? Like, is that really a benefit? And so it's hypercritical, hyper-focused, really stubborn, but it's also been, I've learned so much like, oh, 35 in April. And it's, yeah, it's been a huge teacher in 35 short years. And that's, yeah. I mean, it's still the way that I do things. I just try and be more diplomatic about it these days. Maybe sometimes don't ask my guys. They don't know anything. No, I don't know if I'm more diplomatic about it, but I try. So I feel like that's the only way to live, right? Like I definitely can relate of like jumping into things and like being like, I got this idea and I'm going for it and I'm hell bent on it. Not always like looking at all the things that maybe I should be considering just going after it. But I feel like that's how you get stuff done, right? That's how, I don't know. I'm with you. Maybe that's just like, uh, yeah, I love that personality. It's good. It's good. Don't lose it. I think, I think that a lot of people do get frozen inside of like the decision-making, like the, oh, what could go wrong? Where I think that you and I, especially if you've already done, if you've made a lot of mistakes by a certain age, you're like, well, I survived all those. I'm going to be fine. It's going to be okay. And, oh yeah. Just like, just full sense. Like whatever, we'll just do this. Like, it'll be fine. I'll survive it. And if I don't, you know, like whatever, we'll just start over. And so I think you get really good at being okay with failing on a massive level. I mean, like I have failed so much and the lack of self-consciousness or, and the refusal to give into fear, I guess, I think that it's this 
incredibly powerful way of saying, oh no, we can do this. We're going to be fine. Like, let's just do it. Just, you know, yeah. Sometimes it looks like you're making it up as you go. And most of the time you are, but it's also you're learning as you go. And just like everybody else, nobody has all of the answers. Nobody has a complete picture. Right. So it's even, even people who think they have the answers don't really have the answers. Let's transfer that over to bike racing, because I feel like, you know, being a downhill bike racer and not just going for it and that, you know, resiliency, how did you get into riding? Cause I feel like there's a lot of things that translate that connect there. So I was a uh, competed snowboarding a lifetime ago. I coached skiing and snowboarding and competed. And then I'm um, after a few serious injuries, I met someone who introduced me to downhilling as an adult. And I had ridden bikes, you know, like as a kid. And then as a teenager, I got into mountain biking, but then, you know, like most teenagers kind of strayed away from it and then came back to it as an adult, as sort of a summer sport in between snowboarding. And it just, it stuck. It was a lot more fulfilling for me than, than snowboarding was. And there was a lot at the time I was risking a lot within, you know, like snowboarding and coaching and stuff with very little reward. And I'd been doing it for a really long time. And so I just wasn't into it. And so, you know, early mid twenties, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to try something new. And I did. And it was, you know, ultimately that kind of, as I say, that made all the difference. Right. Yeah. I feel like cycling for me, just, I never thought I was going to be, I would never be where I am now. I mean, I went to school to be a chef and I found the bike and it gave me all this sense of like, I don't know, confidence in my skills and power. And, you know, I did 24 hour racing. So like, you know, a lot of people would be like, you do that. That's crazy. But I was like, ah, that's no big deal. You know, like the being like stubborn and like, I got, I got this, the bike just, and then I was good at it. So the bike gave me so much confidence and like, you know, the energy. And I just wanted to share it with everyone. I don't know, you know, if you felt like that, I mean, you're freaking kick butt racer. I mean, you crushed it downhilling, Amanda, like, you know, you, were you super proud of the, like these skills that you didn't even know that you had and you're out there just, I mean, how did you feel about that? I mean, up until a couple of years ago, I thought that everybody had those skills. I just thought that I was probably more stubborn to learn and to get back up. I think that I had something to prove to myself because like as a pastry chef, so coming from a similar background as you, I was like, I was constantly just questioning myself. Like, am I doing the right thing? Like, is this effective? Like, what the hell is going on? Like, what am I actually doing? And it was demoralizing on so many levels where downhilling, there was such a, even if you crashed, if you got back up and just kept going, it was like, I'm tougher than that. Like I'm stronger than that. It's kind of like, it's the whole failure thing. And so to me, where before failure had meant like, oh, you suck, you're terrible. Like you have no idea what you're doing failure became this thing of like, oh, no, 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 no. And I kind of learned this crucial thing that I'd been preaching for so long, but I hadn't actually been living was if you're not failing, like if you're not falling, you're not progressing. And so for me, it was like every time I crashed or every time, you know, like I made a mistake or I couldn't adapt in time during a race or even just riding, I sort of learned how to become a beginner again and how to fail and how to embrace failure in a meaningful way that actually improved my life as well as the life of those around me. And it became this philosophy is, especially as a woman, I think that that, you know, I can't dismiss gender because it is gender is so much part of that. And so much of how we're treated is such a huge part of how that is such a huge part of what shapes us. 
And so as a woman, it was, there weren't a lot of women in downhill either. So it was really interesting, you know, to have someone be like, oh, no, 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 I've seen your ride. Like you go ahead and lead out versus, and then on this, you know, on the flip side of that, have someone cut me off. Who's like, oh, it's just a blonde ponytail. Like she's not going to go that fast. It was, and so it was this constant dose of like, I know I'm good. Like I've seen, like, I know what I'm doing. And then it became this source of confidence where everything that I do, it's okay if I screw up because at least it's not going to hurt as bad as breaking your back or, you know, having surgery or it's not going to be that bad. Like it's just failure, you know, it's, and as a racer, you'll constantly learn so much about being broke that you, (laughs) that you sort of become very comfortable with all the sides of what it looks like. And so, yeah, it was racing and bikes gave me my entire life, which I never planned on, you know, which I don't think anybody in the bike industry actually plans on ending up where we do. I think that it's sort of this very experiential, this meandering path that we take. And then we sort of end up and we're like, Oh wow. Look at this. Cool. Cool. I mean, this is okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, circling back to the failure piece, it's something, you know, we can apply to every part of our life, but I'm with you on that lesson. Like, once you realize that it's okay to fail and it, it actually makes you a better person because you can take a step back and you can look at what made you fail and you could go, oh, I understand now I got it. And then you actually emerge as a superhuman or, you know what I mean? A better version of yourself because you went through that oh, yeah. process. <laughs> yeah. I think that it, especially with hypercritical people, it creates a self-awareness that maybe that probably wouldn't exist otherwise. And instead we would sort of either turn that inward or turn it outward and become really terrible people. But I think that that hypercriticism through failure, actually, it's sort of, it's kind of like a diamond. It can either be a worthless rock or it can actually be used as a tool to create better things, to create stronger things. And, and it's especially with hypercritical people, when we create the opportunities for failure and we can look at that and say, okay, well, here's where I screwed up and it becomes this self-awareness. It becomes an understanding of, and almost a humility and a willingness to say, this is where I failed, you know, because I grew up in a family that is very hypercritical and not very like willing to admit failure or apologize. And so for me, that became like a point of pride, like it being able to say, yeah, I screwed up royally. Like I totally, like that was I screwed that up and I'm sorry. And it's, it's become not, not the end of the world and we can move yeah. on. Right. <laughs> well, especially when you look at it from like a humanity stand, like standpoint, there is not a single person who is going to never fail. And the difference between failure and success is often just saying, I screwed up. Here's how and this is going to be different. Especially when you're racing, you don't like, you know, you don't really have a choice. If you want to continue racing if you want to get better and get faster and get stronger, you have to be extremely critical about what you did wrong. And there's power in that ownership of the failure. There's power in saying, okay, I prepped wrong. And it's like, this is my blind spot. Yeah. So racing mountain bikes, you know, were you working at shops at the same time, Amanda? Did you, have you been in bike shops prior to? No. So I'd been in a couple of bike shops, but only as like an athlete and, or like a buddy, like I had friends who worked in shops and I knew how to do 
a lot of my own stuff, but I didn't trust myself. There wasn't like this sense of confidence. And I had some of the tools, but it was kind of like cobbled together. Like a lot of racers are, I think that we depend heavily on our mechanics mm-hmm. and, but we don't know the nitty gritty that goes into it per se. And I think that being in a shop environment at that point was so, it was not something that I'd ever planned on. I mean, I'd worked retail and I'd worked in shops doing like various like ski and snowboard shops, you know, like buying or, you know, like tuning skis or like changing flats on a very rare basis, as long as I could get out of it. But up until a couple of years ago, I wasn't a shop rat. I worked in order to fund my racing, I actually worked in business development, small financial company. And so it was, I saw that I saw businesses, you know, fail on a daily basis. And it was really interesting to see that and contrast everything I was seeing, you know, in the private equity world with what I was seeing in the bike world um, about how companies were run, about how sponsorships happened, about how contracts were written. And so it was very, you have, I had all of these very unique, very contrasting viewpoints of an industry that for, I mean, to be very frank with you, Heather, the bike industry is so messed up. Like the bike industry is so messed up and not even like from a, not even from, I mean, from where to start the bike industry is so messed up from a financial standpoint, from a personnel standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, like there are so many things wrong with what we're doing with the model of what shops are doing. And it's not necessarily like one person's fault or like even one sector's fault. It's sort of this lack of understanding of how an efficient business should and like an efficient profitable business can and should be run and also how to take care of people. And I think that that's the disconnect. You have shops that are really good for their communities and who do, you know, so much, so, so much in their neighborhoods and their communities and they do so much good. And then you have sort of these vulture shops and one of them sort of makes money or they look like they're making money. Well, one of them is never, they're never going to ever be in the black. Like they're never going to make a penny. You know, they're barely covering rent if they're doing that. And I think that there's, I know that there's a better way to bridge that gap. And so, yeah, that's a long winded answer. Sorry. No, I I love it. And you're right. The bicycle industry, we have a lot of work that we could do collectively. There's a lot of, you know, I feel like this past couple of years have really opened the curtain on that, exposed us in a way about how, you know, our industry could really do so much better. I mean, okay, so let's talk about the shop. So your website, your tagline says, I don't know if you call it tagline, but it says, we're changing how the bike business does business because we can. So is this what we're talking about, Mina? Is this what you're referring to? That is exactly what I'm referring to. So a few years ago, I it's kind of started with this article. I mean, I guess it was it's been more than a few years. Shit, it's been five years now. I got kind of bitchy on the internet about how shops were such a cesspool of bad behavior. People didn't want to go into them. Shops were reviving customers out like the Vibing, vibing anybody who didn't fit a certain mold out in order to chase one customer that the numbers did not support, you know, courting. For example, in order to get a white man inside of the bike industry, in order to get a dollar from him, shops, companies, marketers, we have to spend 70 cents in order to get a single dollar. So we're talking 70% of every dollar 
that that guy spends, it costs us to procure that customer. Where you look at women, and we're talking white women, it's seven cents on average per dollar. It costs us seven cents to get a white woman's money per dollar. If you go to often underrepresented people demographics, we're talking LGBTQIA, we're talking, you know, non-binary folks, we're talking trans queer, we're talking black people, we're talking people who are traditionally underrepresented in the bike industry. It costs even less than that. I mean, we're talking pennies, like hundreds of a penny on the dollar. And yet we're spending all of this money and all of this time and all of this marketing and all of this energy courting the guy who's already buying bikes, who's already spending money and also kind of behaving like an asshole. Yeah. And like, why, why are we doing that? Why are shops specifically catering to the guy who, yeah. So, and we have some of those customers here in the shop and I'm going to be very honest, like they can be very nice, but they don't spend as much money as the bike industry claims that they do. They are always way higher maintenance and we're not making the bike industry better because of this shop behavior, because of where we're putting marketing dollars, because of the athletes that we're sponsoring, because of the events that we're putting on. And so a few years ago, I kind of was talking about this and I was like, this is absolute crap. Like there's no point to any of what we're doing and shops suck. Like I don't want to go into a shop and the way that I was treated as a professional female downhiller, I mean, you walk into a shop and it's like getting mansplained to, or like getting openly derided because I'm asking for a specific item. I know that I need that item. I know what it does. I know how to use it. I know how to put it on. And you're still going to talk down to me just because of the way that I look or my gender. Like, so I, I kind of opened a can of worms and, you know, a shop posted on either Instagram or Twitter about how, yeah, sure. Buy your bike online and you won't get any support. And I was like, okay. So, I mean, I'd worked at competitive cyclist as a CSR. Um, and then later sort of got involved in like the copy review, that side of things. But it bothered me that people were talking down to that is an industry shops and owners and companies even were talking down to the internet purchaser. And saying, well, if you buy your bike on the internet, you deserve whatever happens. And I think that it was after like a warranty issue with Canyon, maybe like they'd had something fail, which every company has mm-hmm. it's not if any bike company, any components company, they've been around long enough, they've had something fail. And so, you know, saying that, oh, they're an internet company. That's why it failed is then mm-hmm. that's, that's not honest. It's dishonest. What an interesting way to just like flip it over, Amanda, and just expose it like you just did, you know, the cost of marketing to a white male cyclist versus going after a female. And then even the demographics, looking at, we just did a consumer research study on cyclists over the past couple of years. And, you know, maybe it's what we were talking about earlier. It's easy, right? It's easy for brands to market to males, or it's easy to go after a certain demographic. But looking at the report that we did in the research, wouldn't we be so much smarter as an industry to reach after, you know, the African-Americans or the Hispanics or Latinos or the, and to just expand our sport, you know? Well, and it's, I mean, the thing is, is it's not just stupid. And I don't think that it's as easy as people claim it is because yes, it's easy to sell something that, you know, 
it's easy to talk to people who look like you, who come from similar backgrounds as you, but black people are on bikes. Hispanic people are on bikes. Mm -hmm. Indian people, Asian people, like people are on bikes, regardless of where they come from. Non-binary people, everybody is riding bikes, especially now after the pandemic, which is why like someone's probably going to shoot me for this, but I think the pandemic is the greatest thing that ever happened to the bike industry. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, even the shortages, because it has clarified so many things, but people are on bikes and I see it here in Albuquerque every day. And it's not just white people. And they talk about how, oh, what, you know, cycling is the new golf. No, it's not. No, it's not. One, we don't use that much water. I mean, there's a lot of things that I have issue with about that argument, but it's not because it is not overwhelmingly white and it is not for the overwhelmingly white and it is not made for the only the wealthy where golf definitely absolutely is. And the bike industry is ignoring so many of the core users mm -hmm. to claim what's the return on investment there. Like you look at it from a purely financial standpoint, there is no ROI. Like you are literally, if you're breaking even, you're doing a great job and that's not enough. That doesn't keep a company afloat. That doesn't keep a shop afloat. That doesn't keep a brand afloat. And so why the hell is everybody doing it? Are we doing it because we don't know better? Are shops doing this because they don't actually understand that economically it's inefficient and that it's also super, I mean, pardon my friends, but like it's super fucked up to not actually acknowledge. It's not that these people are minorities either. It's that they're underrepresented and there's a, there's a difference because it's not that any of these underserved demographics actually in the whole wide world, the global populace are any sort of minority. And it's not that they're not riding bikes. It's just that they are grossly unrepresented mm -hmm. in industry advertising materials, in industry spending dollars, in shop, in catering. We're not actually talking to the people who are riding bikes. And mm -hmm. for me, that's a big deal because... If someone is buying a bike on the internet, it doesn't matter where they got it. If a shop is good enough at what they're doing, they should be clamoring for that customer because they're right. That customer isn't able to go back to the internet company and say, hey, I need you to service my suspension. Hey, I need you to work on my drivetrain. So what the hell? That's where a shop comes in. That's literally a shop's job. It doesn't matter if someone gets a bike at Walmart. It doesn't matter if they buy it online. It does not matter what it costs. It does not matter what, because a good shop should be able to say, yeah, we can work on that. We can work on that. We can help you. We can get that part. A good shop should be diverse enough that they can serve anybody who walks through the door with any problem they have, regardless of what it is. It's making me remember a conversation I had over the summer with Kaylee Kornhauser from the All Bodies on Bikes film. And, you know, she was, we were talking about shops being more welcome to all cyclists, whatever they look like and her experience of going into stores and, you know, people just ignoring her or even, you know, just assuming, you know, putting these assumptions in the air and how as shops, you know, through our marketing, through our social media, through just how our employees interact can be so much more welcoming and open to anyone walking in the doors. You're so right. Underrepresented is a great word. Let's talk about the bike co-op. So it says co-op. Dive into that. Is it an actual co-op, Amanda? Or? <laughs> it hasn't been a co-op for a few decades now. However, that's one thing that we're taking, that I'm taking back to. It's technically, it's a coop. 
it's became the coop a while back, but it's kind of like chicken coop. We just have this whole bunch of just hens in a hen house often laying. No, we're not laying eggs. Although <laughs> I sometimes I am, but it's the co-op is something it's a magic sort of, it's a cooperative. That's what the word co-op is. It's a cooperative effort. And I think that classically co-ops have been defined as specific things, but what we're doing, and I'm like rubbing my hands here because this excites me kind of the direction that we're going, like everybody here is paid a fair, if they're not volunteers, they get paid a fair and living wage. Even like nobody here makes less than $16 an hour. And he's an assistant wrench slash intern. And I think that that's the first step is not paying people what you can afford and still pay your Range Rover payment off. It's about taking care of people. And that has to be the first priority because if you take care of people as your first priority, everything after that, it's trickle down, give a shit. That's what it is. Once you decide that you're actually going to give a shit about what you're doing, once you decide that you are going to take care of your people, even at occasional cost to yourself or your bottom line, quote unquote, when you decide that the number one priority is to take care of people, that changes everything. It changes your community. It changes your staffing. It changes everything because everything, it reverberates through all of the systems in place. So if our slogan, so because we can, why would you do that? Why would you prioritize paying your staff a living wage? Why would you prioritize getting more kids on bikes? Why would you prioritize taking care of the community? Why would you prioritize cutting someone a break maybe? Because we can. Because that's what should have been happening the entire time. That's The bike industry has been able to do. We have so many massive financial players on so many different levels. I mean, we're talking about Outside Magazine here. Like They just bought Pink Bike. We're talking about the pro's closet. They just bought the Radivist. We're talking about a lot of freaking money being poured into a space that doesn't prioritize care. It doesn't prioritize actually giving a shit. And I think that it's so morally bankrupt because we're prioritizing all of these things that don't really matter. Like, yeah, okay, you have a $12,000 bike, but like, what are you doing on it? Like, why does that matter? Are you pushing your limits? Are you pushing limits of what can be done on a bicycle? Are you pushing the limits of what people think cycling is? Like, what are you actually doing with that? And so, and that's not a jab at $12,000 bikes. Like, trust me, I like nice stuff too, but it's a question as to for every $12,000 bike that you sell, what are you doing with that margin? What is your margin? Do you have sustainable business practices? What is your return on investment? Is that investment in your community? Is that investment in the people who walk through your door? Is that investment in not giving assholes the right to be entitled when they walk through your door? Is that investment taking care of the people who show up every day to open your store? And that's so much of that investment for so long has been no. I mean, and I've lived it, you know, like working at competitive cyclists, for instance, They don't take care of people, you know, working at the shop that I was at just a couple of years ago where I started on March 2nd or 3rd. And then the pandemic hit on Mm -hmm. March 10th. So that was cool. Took over all of our marketing. It was a big deal. And so these things have slowly, you know, you fail enough and you come up with the right questions and you figure out what works and what matters. And I think that for a large portion of the bike industry, 
we're not taking care of people. And I want to know why, because it's possible. Yeah. So I don't know. I think you probably are aware that I just came into this role in February, 2021. And I feel like you and I are like sisters or something because I'm with you because I was like, you know, I just want retailers to know that we care. I want the MBDA to be back in constant communications and let people know that, hey, I'm not going to have all the answers, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to be right here alongside you. And if you need me, I'm here and I care about you. And when we start getting that, when we start leading with that feeling that should be that everyone should lead with, that's when we start being able to do really good work. And it's not just about selling a bike or it's not just about you know buying the car that we have our eyes on personally. It's about actually making a difference. And then our industry is going to thrive. So but it's huge, Amanda. What you're talking about is huge. And we're not afraid of it. Dive right in, right? That's <laughs> Dive in. Well, the only way to actually do that, the only way to say, I give a shit, is to get out there and walk the walk. And like, I have not been perfect. When I first took over, like officially, I took over in April this year. I was so terrified of not doing it right, that the shop was not a pleasant place to be. I was an asshole. Because I was so focused, and I will be fully honest about that. I was so focused on not failing that I was absolutely 100% failing. I was doing a terrible job. I was not taking care of my people. I was not taking, you know, like I had this whole mission statement of like what we're going to do and like how we're going to, and I fucked it up. And I think that so many, especially so many nonprofits, so many people who want to change things don't end up actually making a net we don't make a net difference that is positive. And in the end, we do more harm. And it doesn't matter what your intent is. If you're not doing something that's beneficial to everybody, if everyone can't win, then why the hell are we doing it? And I think that people have gotten used to these terms of collateral damage, that people have, they familiarized themselves. Like we've all sort of absorbed these shitty capitalist habits of like, oh, get mine, like stomp on everybody. No, 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 no. Because if you want to go fast, sure, go alone. Absolutely. I'm a downhiller. I know how that goes. If you want to go fast, don't be on a team. But you know what? Even the most successful downhillers have teams. They have teammates. They have mechanics. They have managers. They have the people who book their flights if they're not doing it themselves. It is a team. And any successful part of a team, it requires the understanding that you are not alone and that you have to take care of people. So if you want to go fast, sure, go alone. If you want to go far, get the best goddamn team you can and give them anything they need, everything they need. Because people, and I say this around here a lot, mechanics are only as good as the tools that they use. If we don't have the right tools, that's my failure. If none of us have the things that we need in order to succeed on a daily basis to thrive, that's a failure. And I think that that goes for the larger bike industry as well. Like if female athletes are underrepresented, if classically underrepresented demographics, they're not seeing themselves in marketing. If they're not seeing themselves in shops, if they're not seeing themselves everywhere they go, it's not their fault. It's our fault. That's bad leadership on the bike industry part. That's bad leadership on the people who are supposed to be leading the way with representation. I mean, that means hiring, that means sponsorship, that means training. Bicycle Retail Radio is supported by our NBDA members. All our member benefits can be found at nbda.com. 
Join the NBDA today. As a female athlete, it always irked me that there were so many people who were like, well, girls just aren't fast. And I would look at them and say, all right, show me a youth development program that is specifically geared towards young women in mountain biking. Show me any program that is performance, like performance focused. I mean, do you have youth Devo programs out the wahoo for young teenage boys? I mean, they start as young as eight and nine and 10. And these are feeder programs that go to the world cup. And you're talking about guys who have been in these programs since they were teenagers, they have been shaped and formed and molded into these speedy little versions of themselves. And every time someone says, well, female downhillers just aren't fast. Why? Like, let's go to the tape. Let's look at the reasons why. Let's look at the level of investment. Like, Let's look at the lack of representation in shops, in the bike industry, in industry jobs. Like, where have we failed? Because that goes back to like that whole self-awareness, that whole willingness to say, we have screwed something up. And I think that there are so few people in the bike industry who are actually self-critical enough and honest enough to say, all right, we screwed this up. We did this wrong and we need to change it. So for like, for every woman that got vibed out of a frame building class or who was told that, that they just weren't good enough, that they didn't have an eye or they didn't have the talent, quote unquote, which is my favorite one. Like that's one, it's bullshit. But for every person who has been shut out because the systems that were created by those in power were meant to keep those people in power, I say burn it down. Burn so it down. <laughs> I say burn it down and start over. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just seeing how much we can fail and what we can fuck up and the little ways that we succeed and then just pass those on and hope that someone wants to pick up the torch whenever we're done with it. So the shop started in 1977. And so you officially took over in April of 2021. So you're coming in, you've got all these great ideas, you know, (laughs) failing, as you say, but also just, you know, I don't know, being you and putting you into it, which is so important. Describe to me, like, you know, what is your biggest where would you say like the shining light is for the future? You say you're doing things different. Like, you know, the industry is really fucked up right now. Excuse my French too. And struggling. And we have all these supply issues. You know, how do you think that you can help make your, your piece of the industry, your store, your community, I don't know, enhance it. What are your ideas? Well, kind of everything. So I inherited a mountain of debt that I did not know about. It's been an uphill battle, but in order to counter that debt, we shut down purchasing. I got rid of all of my stocking dealer accounts. So we're not a dealer, quote unquote, for any single bike company. And what, and that sounds absolutely insane, but- I know listeners are probably like, what? <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. Show me a bike company that has bikes mm-hmm. on a consistent basis, enough to the point where dealers can actually stock their floor. So- you and I are on video right now. So you can see everything that's behind me, like the wheels and the frames hanging in the ceiling. So when I got here, it was a hoarder's dream and a neurodivergent soul's worst nightmare. My nightmare, my nightmare. I started hanging out here and answering the phone as a volunteer. And then I just started cleaning. And basically the coop has been, so we started in 1977, Dave and Terry started it. And then it was purchased by Greg Overman in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then basically run really well for a few years and then not. 
And over the last few years, it's just been run into the ground, essentially. And then COVID was sort of the cherry on top. Just, you know, he, the previous owner was ready for retirement and COVID just demolished him, you know, personnel issues, purchasing issues, and simply volume. Everybody wanted to ride bikes. Everybody wanted their bikes repaired, but capable wrenches were hard to come by. And so volume killed him. And when I got here, bikes were stacked along the walls, like six and eight deep. Couldn't see the cases, couldn't see the floor. In contrast, we have people now who come in and are like, did you guys expand? Did you remodel? And I always laugh because I love that so much. It's so gratifying because I'm like, we have a floor. Did you know we have a floor? And it's still, it's still kind of happening. I mean, even this morning, you know, I was up front hanging slat wall just because, you know, small business owner, you do everything all the time. You wear all the hats, but it's, so when I got here, I cleaned, just cleaned and cleaned and cleaned. And then we hired a bunch of interns willing to work for bike parts who we stripped frames for months, just getting rid of the shitty plastic parts, taking them down to steel. And essentially all of these bikes that people probably have wanted to throw out so many times over the years, we have frames back here that are, you know, Reynolds 531. Like we have, we have frames that are, you know, track true temper. Like we have these amazing steel frames that we have stripped. Some of them we have repainted. Some of them have just gotten restored as they sit and we are putting new and modern components on them and selling them without any frame cost because the frames are free. So if I charge for that, that seems a little, to me, that seems a little fucked up, Mm -hmm. but you can sell parts at full margin. If the bike is recycled, if the frame has been recycled and it's a solid frame and it's been inspected for steel for, you know, rust. And Mm -hmm. if the frame is solid and you're selling a bike, that is better than the ones that you can currently find on the market at much higher prices. It has a way of changing everything. And I think that so many shops right now are like, Oh, how do we keep up? How do we keep up? How do we compete? Don't don't stop competing. Mm -hmm. Be honest about where you're located, what your demographic is and who you're serving. We're located across from the, from the university here in New Mexico. So we're literally a block south of UNM. So we have a lot of college students. We have a lot of international students. We have a very eclectic customer base. And because we are now the oldest shop in Albuquerque, we have all the old heads, like classic, I mean, guys with classic bikes, but we also have an incredible crew that one of my guys has finished the Tour Divide seven or eight times. Sweet. He rode it south to north this year because he's just that insane. Another one of them, I think he just turned 60. He's fantastic. He can work on anything. I'm talking like 2021 suspension or like a 1930s Schwinn. Like he's amazing. And he raced in Europe. He's raced all over the world, road bikes. And it's one of those things where this crew is so diverse and has such a massive breadth of experience and expertise and these individual stories and all these individual personalities that it's kind of like a circus, but it's a very, very, very special circus. And bike shops have to get honest. Like if you hire the same person over and over again, you are going to get the same result. And you slowly just corner yourself into this itty bitty shitty niche that doesn't really serve anybody except for the people working in the shop. 
Yeah, what you're saying is so important. And what I'm hearing is, you know, and you're talking about your location near the university is bicycle retailers have to stop fighting with the whole industry at large and being better or keeping up with what their brand's expectations are or what even they think their expectation of or what a bicycle retailer looks like in their brain and start just being their authentic bicycle retailer self and look at their community and how they can best serve their community. Like all the people that are right there located right around your store that are just ready and want to interact with you, those figure out how to get to them, not how to compete with specialized selling online. Cause that's going to be there. That's an issue, but that's not really the battle. The battle is connecting with the people who are right there in your community who really truly need you. You look at all these retailers who are like, well, I can't compete with backcountry or Walmart or insert company name. So don't. So mm-hmm. stop trying to compete. Like I had, so I worked at another local shop last year, really garbage experience. I'm going to be honest about, but it was so absolutely, I mean, it was intrinsic. It was so crucial to what we're doing here because I learned out the hard way that you can bitch about the internet all you want if you don't know how to use it. If you don't know how to weaponize the internet, you don't have to compete with specialized. I will never be able to compete with how much money specialized does annually just with online retailers. I'm not in competition with Mike's bikes. I'm not in competition with competitive cyclists. I'm in competition with me because if I'm not using the internet to track and control and stock inventory, then I don't have a right to bitch about the tool that is making specialized or competitive cyclists or Mike's bikes or anybody else very, very good at what they do. Because if you don't have an understanding and a willingness to adapt, if you don't have an understanding of the technologies that are emerging and a willingness to adapt to those technologies, one, you're going to fail and it's going to be your fault and your fault alone. You can't blame someone else simply because they're adapting faster. If you, and I think that that's the issue with so many retailers right now is we're looking at bike shops and they're like, oh, the internet is killing small bike shops. No, it's not. You're mm-hmm. killing small bike shops. You are specifically killing bike shops because you refuse to adapt to a technology that everybody on the planet earth is using. If you are not adapting to the YouTube instructionals, if your service menu isn't QR accessible and on the freaking internet, you have failed. If you are not putting your product, and I will say this out loud, if you're a bicycle retailer and you want me to teach you how to do this and how to actually reach your community, I will help you and I will do it for free as long as you're not an Albuquerque. No, it's one of those things where this is such an important part of reaching people who who are non-traditional, like marketing speak, non-endemic users of the bicycle industry. Like if you want to reach people, you have to meet them where they're at. If you want them to get outside, you have to give them that power. If you want them to see your product, if you want them to be interested in your product, you have to make it accessible. You have to make it relevant. And you have to give them a reason to want to get involved. But if you vibe out everybody who walks through your shop, be into your shop because you're an asshole, you have devolved. You are a bike industry dinosaur. And it doesn't even serve the people doing it. It doesn't, I mean, they're phasing themselves out. And that's what I don't understand is we have so much, there's so much potential. There's so much possibility and there's so much joy. Like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, getting outside the things that matter, the things that make us whole, that keep us sane. If we're not sharing that, if we're not promoting that, if we're not doing everything in our power 
to help people do that, then we are wasting what we have. We're wasting the power that we have to actually create, to make little ripples. And that's the thing. It's like, you want to change the world? Don't say, I'm going to change the world. Say, I'm going to change one life today. I'm going to make that person's day today. I'm going to smile at them and I'm going to ask them how they're doing. I'm going to tell them that I like their shoes. You don't start with changing the world. You start with tiny actions. It starts with taking care of the people around you. And trust me, as someone who's tried to change the world multiple times, (laughs) I'm telling you this. I know this from failure. I have learned this. If you want to change the world, you start with the people around you. You give them a living wage. You make sure that they're taken care of. You make sure that your local kids have striders because their parents are going freaking insane because their kids have been trapped inside for two years. Amanda, did you guys give away a strider every day in December? Did I see that somewhere? You did. did. We did 30 striders. That's awesome. How sweet were those kids? I mean, were, did you actually give some kids the bikes yourself and see their reaction? Yeah. All of them, every single one, like, well, except for, you know, like when the parents came in to get them because they wanted to be a Christmas surprise, but it was, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the bug that I had in 2018 when I had the massive help of, you know, bike Twitter and we gave away over 200 bikes to kids here in Albuquerque, but it's the same thing. If you want to make a difference, like when the kids came to this, like, I'm telling you, it was, and will forever be my favorite thing. Like giving bikes away is Man, some of those kids like you just, your whole soul is just, I, I don't even know how to explain it because, and these parents, like these, some of these parents are at their wits end. Like, I mean, we're talking like financially, emotionally, like they don't have childcare. Some of them have childcare, but the babysitters are overwhelmed or they've gotten COVID like multiple times. So it's, we're at this breaking point in humanity where if we don't take care of each other, if we don't give each other something to look forward to every day. Like I'm still getting updates from parents like, Hey, so-and-so has been on his bike every single day. Like he got sick. He has a cold and he's still telling us that we have to go outside with him and let him ride a strap. Like that is, that's the most important thing that I will ever do is taking care of the people who make up this small pond. Like it doesn't matter how big your pond is. If you can make little ripples that eventually you just keep throwing rocks in the pond and you'll make enough ripples that eventually it'll reach far enough. And the thing is, is like, if a single one of those kids stays on bikes, when those kids outgrow those striders, the only ask that I asked is that they give them away. Please don't sell them. Yeah. Just give them to someone who needs a strider, give them to another family, pass them down to a sibling, use that to make a difference. And so, yeah, it's 31 striders. Absolutely. It's 31 striders, but you know what? Those things are solid. Like they're going to last for so long. And when kids get their hands on a bike for the first time, it is the first sense of real independence, especially the strider. When they, they learn how to balance, they learn how to push. They learn when they pick up their feet for the first time, the look on their face is absolutely intoxicating. And I sound like an alcoholic. I sound like an addict right now because I am. I am. I am a bikeaholic and I love giving kids these, this gateway. The first one's free. Like, you know, it's almost like, it's almost kind of like a drug dealer. And it is something that will, if enabled, it will help guide them through their lives. It will instill a sense of confidence. It'll instill a sense of independence and this capability, you know, the ability to make their own decisions, their ability to create themselves into this, into their own person. 
who, and these are all peer reviewed. This is evidence. These are facts that have been studied and tested and reviewed by scientists who are much, 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 much smarter than I am. <laughs> but seeing the looks on the faces of these kids and these parents, it's, yeah, you can't yeah, There's no, it cannot be quantified. There's no qualifying quantitative measurement, you know, like this ROI, like, yeah, we can get technical with it, but it doesn't matter. Like in the end, it, I think it changed all of us a lot more than it probably changed our community, but it's. Yeah. There's going to be like this day, five years from now, where one of those striders comes into the store and you're going to be like, oh, it's going to be awesome. Well, <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, if you think it's also the ultimate act of rebellion, like you want to create, I mean, do you know how many kids are going to be, they're saying that the generation that's going to be born because of COVID during COVID and because of COVID. And you know, that first nine months when everybody checked up, mm-hmm. it's going to rival the baby boomer generation. If you get that many kids on bikes at the very beginning of like their personhood, you're creating an army. And that's like the coolest, you're creating this powerful little army that will, regardless of the state that our world is in, they will have the knowledge and the tools to advocate for better. I mean, we're talking like better treatment of everybody, but also better infrastructure funding, better transportation. We're, all of these things that are so crucial to the daily happenings in 20 years, this generation will be doing that. And so it's not a short term take over the world plan. Like I'm in this, I'm in this for the long haul. So it's sort of a rebellion and it's sort of like a, build it and they will come, but it's also like these tiny ripples that are only benefiting families. These tiny glimpses of sunshine, like this break in the clouds for some people who have, it's been so hard for so long now. And I think it's really important to remember here is that, you know, you had this idea, like you threw the rock out, like you had this idea and you made it happen. I think too often we live in these little boxes where we do what has been done and we forget what can be done. And each one of us, each retailer that owns a store, each person working in the industry, each staff member every day, we have an opportunity to bring something completely new to the table. And and honestly, once you say you're going to do something, once you commit to doing anything, just keep walking towards it. Like I've always found that when I say, okay, this is where I want to go. Once I put it out there, like into the universe, it's like a lot easier <laughs> to get there, you know, <laughs> as a bike retailer, like you gotta, like you're in it, like you gotta stick with it now. And it's, I mean, that was the, also the cool part is for the first time there was a platform, you know, we did a QR code, you know, built the website, you know, built the web page, had people enter. And then it just sort of snowballed. Like I asked friends, you know, it's the social leverage. I asked friends, like, can you please share this? Can you please put this out across your channels? And so, and it did within, the, I mean, within, we had hundreds of people sign up, which just shows me there's so much more need. There's so much opportunity to do so much more. And it costs us what? A couple of grand. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, are you serious? Like, yeah, yeah, we're small, but I mean, and it doesn't matter where those kids or their parents end up you know, going for future bike service. That was just a massive social effort there. That was also, it was an investment in the future. This belief that those kids are going to, maybe they won't come back, but even if like two or three of them continue riding bikes and they're lifelong customers, that's still an investment in the future of this sport that doesn't happen frequently enough. And I mean, we're seeing more and more and more of it, but 
at what cost? Like, is it, again, is it accessible? How easy is it for people to be part of that? How much are you sharing it? What's the relevance? Do they want it? And why should they be interested in it? And I mean, it goes back to classic marketing, but it also, it covers human behavior. How do we look at things? How do we see the world around us? How can we make small parts of our life better? Even if it's just, you know, my personal goal of going outside every, you know, going outside for 15 minutes a day, like getting out of my little cave here in the back. But it's like, it's the same reason we're building up steel frames. It's the same reason that we're paying a living wage. It's because we can, because someone should. And there comes a point where you, why are we all over Google? Why are we doing, you know, we're doing same day curbside pickup and now we're doing local delivery as of January 1, all through our website. Like, why are we doing that? Well, because we're making cycling accessible and because honestly, I've got the skill. Mm -hmm. Why not? Like, if I can do it, why shouldn't we do it? Like, especially when it's, I'm not paying web developer to do all this stuff. I'm not, it's all part of my skill set. And so coupled with the fact that my guys love getting to the shop and they can go deliver shit on a bike. I mean, why not? Because we're also making, I mean, a person in a wheelchair needs a tube for their wheelchair. If a person in a wheelchair needs a tire, if a mom with a kid like me, like her kids have a meltdown, like she can't leave the house, but God, that kid needs his bike and we can help with that. Like, why not make it more accessible? Why not help people get what they need in order to live a little bit easier, a little bit brighter, a little bit better lives? Like, and that's where the slogan comes from is because we can. And it had to change because it's kind of like a dare too. Is well, why mm-hmm. would you give away 31 striders? Well, why not? We can't <laughs> because we can't. Because I said so. And it's that's kind of the fun thing about being a grown-up is we have all of this power. And yet, what are we doing with it? Like so many of us are like, oh, I, I can't. Oh, I can't. No, we can't afford to do that. Says who? Says what? Like, where are your priorities? So, Amanda, I know you have a background in brand development and social media strategy, and you've built a really impressive following on your personal channels, you know, talking, I'd say like with real, inspiring, honest posts. God, you're writing. It's so honest and vulnerable. And you say tough things. I mean, going back to like as a retailer and making their feeds authentic, I mean, there's got to be a fine line though, right? For the shop versus personal feeds or, I mean, do you? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Like, and I, that's probably been the biggest challenge is because, you know, like I told you before we started, I think recording, it's, you know, you do brand development, you do business development, you know, you help build businesses for long enough with someone else's money. And then you do yours and it is way freaking different. And so having to separate the Amanda Batty voice and the bike coupe voice has been a challenge, but it's also like, again, that goes back to my people. I mean, you know, I've got a 19 year old who's like, I'm like, dude, you take amazing pictures. Like, can you just do it? You know? And and they're like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm in. It's so hard, especially when I just want to, you know, drop just like a mother beep, mother beep. but it's also, I think that that's part of making it accessible. People, it's not about what I want. Mm-hmm. Like it is kind of about what I want, but it's not about what I want. It's about what people need and not just my people, not just the people in this community. It's about what people in the bike world need and what they need to see and what they need to hear and about shops having their own personality, but also sharing what makes us special. It's like a new opportunity to be, you know, a different sort of creative, share your voice in a different way. Cause yeah. you're, still, you're still bringing you in. It's just a little more censored. 
little more censored. It's definitely more censored, but it's also not just, it has to be reflective of everybody involved. And I think that that's where I got lucky is I have these amazing teammates that are also part of the voice. I mean, they answer the phone. They do way more than I do. And it has to represent them. Everything has to represent the people who are involved. And that's kind of where I'm taking it back to the co-op, you know, with profit sharing and having, you know, like having, so later this month, this area behind me will be, and you guys are the first to know, but it will be basically a rent to space. So it will be a co-op again, where people can book a service area to work on their own bike on our website. And they can come in here and they get to use our tools and there will be, you know, professionals, present ish, like willing to help. And I think that it's about doing, and that's not my idea. That was the idea of a customer who the execution of the idea is ours, but it's not, the idea is certainly not ours. An amazing customer said, you know, the coop was always this educational resource in the community. You know, like, are you considering taking it back? And I just thought, yeah, why not? Like, that's a great idea. So, you know, so customers can go on our website and basically rent a window of time to come in and work on their bikes and, you know, to have, you know, essentially like a library, but for bikes, you know, resource manuals and, and how to's and it's financially sound because it'll help us cover our rent. But it's also, I think more importantly, it's an asset to the community. And why would we do that? Why would we not silo information and hoard it is because information's free man like like none of us went to you know like get better at bike wrenching school you know there's no like how to be a bike mechanic 101 it's this conglomerate of all of the lessons and all of the knowledge that has been handed to us by people who were willing to share it over the years and that's what makes bikes so special is it's who you learn from it's how you learn and so behaving as though that's ours to hold on to and how to keep i mean that's why i'm being so i mean clear about what we're doing different here is because it's not mine. It's just an idea. And if someone wants to incorporate it, if someone wants to make it work in their shop, I mean, the least I can do is share it and help because it's how we make people better. That's how we make ourselves better and our communities better and our world and our, that's how we make everything better. And if the goal is progress, it doesn't really matter who gets credit. I think that's so often forgotten, like in the world of, especially in the world of bikes and patents and you know, you know what? It's not about getting credit. I mean, yeah, like there are certain things where I'm like, eh, that's us. We do that. <laughs> yeah. There are other things where I'm I'm just like, and it should be open source. It should be take what you need, use what you can, share it however you're able. Isn't that how bikes have always been? I mean, shit, the Wright brothers built airplanes and they owned a bike shop first. So that's to me, it's who we are. It's what especially in the US, it's who, it's what this world started as and it's what it should continue as because we're we're all better together and we can't do it without each other i mean not even here in albuquerque like there are some shops you know traditionally there's been like a really hostile sort of approach but it's we need each other whether it's we don't have parts and we say hey you got to go up the street to two-wheel drive like we don't have it they're good guys they stock some different stuff and i think they might have it you know we're bike 505 and just Mm -hmm. Say they're they're more of a BMX shop. People depend on honest recommendations, not just from us, but from their friends and the people they ride with. And so, 
the last thing that I want to do is say, oh no, we're the only shop in town who can help you. I mean, that's how I feel, but it's no, it's something that it has to be holistic. It has to be a collaborative effect. It has to be, if it doesn't, like I said, if it doesn't benefit everybody, then why are we doing it? Because there's plenty of space. There's plenty of people. There's plenty of potential customers. I mean, we just have to decide that we want to have them as customers, that we want to make a difference, that we want to change and that we want to make, that we want to include them. Yeah. And part of it is having your ears open, you know, and and listening because like your customer gave you this idea and you have to be open and receptive and pay attention to what's happening around you. I think you're an excellent guest. I mean, there's so many things we just, over this course of this hour, just touched upon. You are just, I think, super confident, super, you know, just brought back some really simple reminders that are simple to say, but very hard to actually follow in life, which is be a good person, realize how important your staff are. And above all, it's the collective voice of your staff, you know, working together and putting yourself aside when you need to, you know, because it's not always about you. (laughs) Never about me. And it shouldn't be. And anytime it's about a single person, that's how it's gone astray, like by a lot. And no, I never thought that I was going to own a shop. I always joked like, oh, athletes who, you know, retire and open shops is because they don't have any other skills. And I was an asshole and I was wrong. It takes a lot of talent and it takes a lot of effort to say, I'm going to get behind the scenes and I'm going to do this. I think that that takes incredible courage and it takes so speaking from experience. Now I am absolutely freaking exhausted. It takes so much so much freaking caffeine, but it does. It takes this it's an interest in making things better. And that is a rare character to have in this world, I think. And it's like Phil Wood, their motto is, what is it? Make it strong, keep it simple, make it work, build it strong. And that's, it's kind of like the quote from Einstein. If you can't explain something complicated in simple terms, you don't understand it well enough. And that is like one of my favorite things ever, because it's, Man, if that doesn't encapsulate the bike industry, I don't, you know, or any mechanic, you know, any sort of mechanical process. I think that if we had more people who could take something as confusing and as scary as running a bike shop and say, no, most of us are just making it up as we go and we're learning. Everybody is. We're learning as we do it. And I think that to sort of to take that stigma off of it, to take to remove ourselves from this, like, oh, I own a bike shop. Eh, it's not glorifying. It's not shiny. It's not cool. It's hard. It's hard. And it is, it's, and it's harder right now just because of supply issues, which we haven't even touched on. But it's also, it's so gratifying to make little miracles, to be the difference in someone's day, to be able to say, oh, yeah, we can get that. We'll find it. Yeah. I mean, if I have to drive to Colorado, you know, and I did, and there's a shop owner in Colorado who, called us like three or four times last week. Like I have to finish this build, please. Like you guys are the only people who have this part in stock. Like, can you help me out? And so at first I was like, no. And then I was like, yeah, don't be an asshole. Fine. Like we'll help. And so it's, but it has to be collaborative. It has to be a willingness to work together and also willingness to set boundaries because there are so many people who are willing to say, oh, you're willing to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when our no asshole policy comes into play where I'm just like, no, you're no longer welcome here or we can't help you. Sorry. And it has to be, a, it's a delicate balance like anything else is. But I think that, yeah, if we're honest about it and we try to keep things simple and we try to make things fair, I'm going to be open about, you know, like, I know that you probably have to get going and 
and these guys are about ready to kill me. But it's also, I think that we raised prices. Like we had to, the cost of a full tune here was $35 last year. It had not been updated in about 30 years. So we raised prices and people were not happy. But when I explained that everybody here makes a living wage, except me. (laughs) No, when I explained that everybody here has a life and they have families and they want to ride their bikes too. And my job is to make that equitable because if someone can't do something, if they can't do a basic tune on their own bike and they're unwilling to learn it from Google or YouTube or whatever, if one of my guys can't, that means it's skilled labor. And I think equitable pay for, especially for specific skilled labor for skilled labor in general, we undermine it all the time, but, but skill is what's keeping our economy afloat right now. The people who have a skill that is required, whether that skill is picking vegetables that will go to a grocery store or a restaurant, or whether that skill is, it doesn't, or being a bike mechanic, like a lot of people downplay it, but it is so crucial and it's so important for so many people, but we pay our skilled workers. So we care so little and it's, a massive problem as we saw, like we're seeing right now, we're seeing it in bike shops. We're seeing it in restaurants. We're seeing it everywhere. And people are fed up. People deserve to be cared about. And I think that when I explained that, and it was always my job to explain to a customer who was unhappy about the prices, you know, it's always my job. And to make that, to make it clear as to why the prices have increased, to make it clear that we're taking care of people that we're that we're trying to do right by the community, that we're making it as accessible as possible for the time that we're spending while still literally keeping the lights on. Mm-hmm. I think that people are like, actually, yeah, that makes sense. I got a mortgage to pay. I got rent to pay. You know, I, yeah. I got to pay my cell phone bill. That, that makes sense. When you explain it and you treat people with dignity and respect, more often than not, <laughs> they respond in kind. And I think that we've lost the ability to do that. We've lost the ability to explain in simple terms, in terms that are easy to understand, regardless of anyone's previous knowledge. I think that that's a huge lack right now is we're not explaining it well enough. We're not talking about the skill and the time and the effort that it does take even to get parts at this point. Like whoever's got the fastest thumb wins. Like that's still a skill. Like that is still, that still means, you know, you got to have you know, you've got to have terms, you've got to have, or cash in the bank, you got to have all of these things in order just to get parts. And that's also a skill. And so it's, I think the bike industry has so much room to grow, but I think that we also have so many people who are willing to see it grow like you and the NBDA and bike shop owners and bike shop staff, especially like, and the customers, customers want to see us grow and change and shift. And, yeah. and a lot of people, oh, the outlook is bleak, but man, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It is. And I'm so happy that you brought up, you know, paying your staff and raising your service prices. And, you know, in our quest to educate retailers, you know, the past couple of months, really, we've been hearing, you know, should I raise my prices? Should I charge over MSRP? And I always say, well, what do you need to do? I mean, let's look at your business plan. What do you need to do? What makes sense for you? And if this is what you need to do, explain it to your customer. And the retailers who are doing that, aren't getting pushback. They aren't getting, because customers want their local shop to succeed, but you have to just be willing to, like you said, Amanda, you're out there having those tough conversations, which again, when you have those tough conversations, 
that gets you somewhere better because you're not afraid. You're not shirking from the tough things. Like when you hit that tough stuff head on and your pricing has to be reflective of what you need to keep your business operating and to pay your employees a respectable wage. And if you can justify that, then you're on the right track, you know, just charging MSRP because that's what it is or charging the same thing your neighbor charges for repairs or your, you know, that doesn't mean anything. So I love that you brought that up. MSRP right now doesn't mean shit. And I will be the first person to say that because we're talking about MSRP that is based on a specific manufacturing process in a specific country with a specific import cost. Like their cost of goods is much, much different than it was even two years ago, even six months ago, their cost of goods, what it costs to make it, transport it, store it, and then unload it. Like how many people do they have to hire before they get a shipping container unloaded? And you're looking at all of these massive, massive shifts that that are not reflected in current MSRP prices, let alone, and those shifts don't, don't even include the cost to retailers to actually get that item on their shelf. What we're spending in shipping, like what the shop is spending in shipping this or in 2021 as compared to 2020 in shipping alone, because we have to hit click and buy it regardless of how full that cart is, regardless of if we're hitting, you know, freight margins. And I'll be, I'll be super, super transparent about this. It has not always made sense to sell a specific product, but if the product is good enough, and if you have people who can make that product make sense, it will sell, Mm -hmm. especially if you're willing to make the investment to bring it in in the first place. And I think that that's a lot of, if you're just looking at the numbers or if you're just looking at the return on investment, or if you're just, if you're solely looking at one aspect instead of all the aspects, step back. What is it costing? Like I'm the owner, I do all of the buying, but like, what does it cost me if I'm buying something versus wrenching? What does it cost the shop if I have to be on the computer all day versus actually helping with customers on the floor? What are these you know, what are these hidden costs that a lot of retailers are not seeing and they're not billing for? Because 40% margin is your average margin. I mean, that's considered a really good margin in the bike industry, which is what, first of all, horseshit. I'm just going to go out and say that 40% margin is horseshit. You cannot pay rent and employees and taxes and bills on 40% margin because you are sacrificing a massive, massive part of your operating costs. Mm-hmm. Just get that product on your floor in the first place. And unless it's the only product that exists like that on the market and you're the only reach, which is horseshit, the internet exists. You can buy anything anywhere where you used to before COVID. No, but it's, there's so many fallacies now. There's so many operational falsehoods that have been sort of passed down, you know, including for stocking dealers that they have to have, you know, a specific amount of product on the floor in order to qualify for a certain rate. One, that's going to screw you every single time. Stop playing the game because when you can't move that inventory because of, I mean, because of unrelated, you know, slowdowns, because of fluctuate, because of market fluctuations, when you can't move that inventory, you have to decrease the price, even though you're still in the hole to specialized or giant or track or whatever manufacturer Mm -hmm. paying, you're still in the hole. You're still at least... I mean, we're talking, you're still at least 60% in the hole because nobody's being like, oh yeah, I can just throw 10 million down for, you know, no, everybody knows you're not. So instead of pretending like you're flush and like everything's good because 
you're about to swallow your tongue because you've got so much freaking debt on inventory that you're paying to store, that you're paying to build, and that you're then losing money on when you have to decrease the price at the end of the model year. Let's stop. Let's stop playing the game of like of bike industry horseshit because that's why retailers are going under because they're trying to keep up appearances by keeping a certain number of bikes in stock. The thing is, is bicycle retailers are the backbone of the bike industry. How we treat our customers, how we pay people, the policies that we enact, those matter. We are the ground floor. We are the foundation. And unless we actually start making better decisions for ourselves, the industry won't improve because while manufacturers like Spech or Scram or Shimano or anybody else, they're employing mechanics. They are not employing mechanics on the level that national retailers are. And so you look, who has the leverage here? How many mechanics make up your average shop staff versus what the manufacturer versus, versus how many of the manufacturer is actually employing? And can the manufacturer respond to a lack of local shops on the ground immediately? No, they're not the U.S. Army. They're not going to ship a bunch of mechanics out to a certain location to deal with a shortage. They can't. And so if retailers want a strong retail presence, they have to start behaving like a strong retail presence. Bike shops have to start saying, you know what? No, we can't afford to do that this year and pay our staff a living wage. No, we're not going to stock $500,000 worth of bikes that we're not going to move by August or September when the next round comes out. No, we're not going to do that because we can't afford to. And I think that once you start saying, no, we can't afford to do that. Certain things, like I said, I got really used to being broke as a bike racer. And so I'm good at saying, no, I can't afford to do that. And there's a lot of independence in that. There's a lot of freedom in saying we can't afford to do that because we have other financial priorities. And that's something that I think too many bicycle retailers don't. And if we did more of that, I think the health of the bike industry and especially that of bicycle retailers would vastly improve, especially those trying to keep up. It's excellent advice. And I'm so looking forward to seeing, you know, watching how this year goes for you and hopefully me and you at the big gear show. And I honestly feel like we should do this again if you're ever game for it, because I love this conversation. There's so many things that we could have just done. <laughs> kept going. On. I would love to do this again. Like this has been fascinating and it's thank you for giving me the platform and thank you for giving me your time because oh, you rock. I have so much. I could just, yeah, I could okay. go on for I would love for you to join one of our women in the bicycle industry chats too. So I'll have to connect with you offline about that. If retailers, listeners wanted to just dive deeper and, you know, reach out to you on anything, do you, would you share your contact information? Yeah. Just send a contact form via the website, bikecoupabq.com. I get them all because, you know, multiple hats, (laughs) so it's going to come directly to me or you can just hit us up on our, you know, Instagram page, which is bikecoupabq. All of our handles are pretty much the same. And yeah, it's to a certain extent, I would love to help as much as I'm able, but as the bags under my eyes suggest, I'm definitely not getting as enough sleep as it is. So as anything else, you know, they've got to be boundaries, but no, this has been amazing. And when I offer help, I'm absolutely game to, you know, whether it's a blog or like a written list of like 10 things not to do this year. (laughs) Yeah. And it's still a learning, you know, experience for me. So there's a good chance that I'm wrong about everything. It's okay. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Well, thank you. Thank you, Amanda. I hope you have an awesome day and I hope to see you soon in person. To our listeners, I invite you to connect with me and come on Bicycle Retail Radio, share your story. 
There's lots of love for our industry, lots of great webinars, educational sessions. We're going to Costa Rica or by this time this one comes out, we just came back. So go on the MBDA website, take a look at all the things happening. If you're a fan of YouTube, head over to our YouTube page to view episodes there. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share your favorite episode with friends. And with this, we go. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Bicycle Retail Radio.